Thank you, ladies. In an obviously divided world, one of the most striking elements of the church is not what we look like on the outside or what we sound like or how we dress or anything else external. One of the most radically countercultural elements of a healthy church is its unity, the peace that it has, that it's shared between one another who would otherwise have nothing in common. And it is that unity, that, that peace, and also the absence of it that we will look at today. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. For those who have been following along with us on Sunday evenings, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the church of God in Corinth. And we've made it to a portion in this letter where Paul is handling the Corinthian church's problematic practices surrounding the Lord's table. And while Sean is out of town for the next two Sundays, I'll take this opportunity to remind us of what Paul teaches both about the nature of the Lord's Supper and also about the proper ways to practice this most holy sacrament of Christ. Specifically this week, we'll examine the wrong way that the Corinthian church was using the Lord's table. And then next week, we'll look at the following verses to explain positively what exactly is the supper of our Lord. But first, let's read our text, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, going through verse 22 today. Hear the word of our Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal... One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. No, I will not. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray and ask his blessing. Father in heaven, we ask that your word and your spirit would be working in our hearts today, that you would bring low those who are walking proud, that you would pick up those who are drooping, and that in all of us we would make Christ our preeminent love. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by looking at verses 17 and 18 and noting our first point, the problem stated. The problem stated. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. The problem in Corinth was selfish divisions. It was 
divisive behavior. Paul comes out out of the gate pretty hard against it. And it's striking, especially in light of verse 2, just above, where Paul commends the Corinthian believers for holding to the traditions that Paul had taught them. And now he's focusing on an area where they have been unfaithful. They've been acting in a way that is not commendable. I do not commend you, he says. In fact, he says that their gatherings were so problematic, it would be better if they hadn't met at all. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Ouch. And the word for division here is schismata. It's where we get our word schism. Rift speaks to a literal tearing of something that had been brought together. It's the same word used in chapter 1 of this book, where Paul argued that the Corinthians were to have no divisions over who their favorite preacher was. Remember, some of them were saying, I like Paul, and I like Apollos, and I like Peter. And I think there's something significant for us to notice here about these schisms, something that might be easy for us to miss. Notice how this Corinthian church is sending mixed messages to the world. It is both externally united, but inwardly divided. You see, they were still gathering as a group while they were fostering factions within. It's very easy for churches to retain the facade of unity, all the while tolerating schismatic elements within. People may still gather weekly. They may join together at the Lord's table and yet still be factious, schismatic, and divisive. It was prevalent, this danger in Corinth, but it's also a danger for us today. And this dynamic of retaining the illusion of unity while tolerating deeper division, this dynamic is possible because the root of all of these factions, of all of these divisions begins in the heart. Divisiveness begins with a problem in the heart. Selfish divisions don't just spring up out of nowhere. They begin with an uncharitable heart. Somebody does something we don't like. They say something we don't take kindly to. They make a decision that we don't agree with. And so we choose neither to cover the offense in love nor to confront the potential issue in love. We instead uncharitably foster division, resentment in our hearts. And from there, we can withdraw our affections, selfishly allow our disagreement to fester into discord. This discord can take different forms depending on our personality. Sometimes uncharitable hearts manifest themselves in a coldness towards another person. Sometimes we downright ignore people, avoid them entirely. Other times this selfishness shows itself in gossip among the body. Sometimes it's divisively recruiting others to join our side so that our faction grows in numbers and theirs shrinks in numbers. Whatever the manner of expression, the root is the same. It's an unloving, uncharitable heart. And we must be on guard against such a posture of heart within us. And take note, too, that no amount of doctrinal alignment 
can ensure this perfect charity and unity. There's no perfect confession of faith that can inoculate a church against division. Morning View is in no way immune to such a temptation. And so we need to start with looking within, examining our own hearts. Am I charitable towards others? Do I have a heart that's quick to overlook offenses? Or do I enjoy keeping a record of wrongs? Am I quick to forgive, to extend forgiveness? Or am I more tempted to stew in bitterness and to harbor ill will in my heart towards others, even while outwardly joining them at the Lord's table? Selfish divisions were the problem in Corinth, and we need to be on guard against such a disposition within ourselves even here. But selfish hearts aren't the only reason that Paul gives for divisions. He also shows us in our second point a surprising reason for divisions. Verse 19, a surprising reason for divisions. Paul says, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's an interesting statement. We must have the counterfeit so that the genuine might be proven true. God in His mysterious sovereignty permits divisions and factions to arise in the church in order that genuine believers may be recognized. That's quite a thought, that God would permit divisive people to be among the body in order that true believers might be highlighted. He lets sin and evil arise in the church so that the godly may be tested and proven true. And some of us might look at this, at the divisive people among the body, and say, surely God's not responsible for that. And yet in His mysterious providence, He uses it for good. A Puritan named Thomas Watson says this about God using even strange circumstances for divine purposes. He says, some people say that there are many things in this world that are done that are very disorderly and irregular, and surely God's hand is not on those things. God's providence is not in those things. And yet, the things that seem to us irregular, God makes use of to His own glory. Suppose you were in a blacksmith's shop and you see several sorts of tools on the bench. Some are crooked and some are bowed and some are hooked. And you, commend, you condemn all of those things because they do not look handsome and in order. But the blacksmith makes use of all of them for doing his work. And thus it is with God's providences. They seem to us to be very crooked and strange. And yet, they all carry on His work. God is the master smith, and He's using all manner of tools to achieve His perfect designs. And He can even use the terrible sin of divisiveness among the body to bring about the good of His people. And we've all seen in Scripture how God does these things. He has a habit of bringing about unexpected good from terrible evil. Think of Joseph. The end of the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers tried to kill him. 
threw them in a pit. They divided their family. They acted divisively. They lied to their father. They sold him into slavery. And then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And when unsuccessful, she has him thrown in prison. And yet, if all of that evil and sin hadn't happened to Joseph, he would never have ended up in the position over all of Egypt's grain and thereby able to be the savior of his nation in the midst of a famine. God allows terrible sin against an innocent one in order to bring about the salvation of an entire nation. That's an important theme. It's exactly what he does in the gospel as well. Wicked men sought to unjustly kill Jesus, and yet God, at the moment of greatest evil, uses it to bring about the most heavenly good. Humans plot, but it's divine plans that come to pass. Reminds me of what Peter says in his Pentecost sermon. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men plotting to bring about divine planning. We see the same thing in Acts 4.27, Acts 13.27. And it's good news for us. You see, we're all guilty of harboring selfishness and resentment in our hearts. We've all been bitter at times, slow to forgive, unwilling to extend mercy, uncharitable towards others who we don't think deserves it. We've all been Joseph's brothers. And as such, we're all demonstrating that we are not like our Heavenly Father, who instead took the initiative to extend divine grace and mercy to the undeserving. God sent His Son to take the initiative in extending grace to the guilty. That's the good news of the Bible. Jesus acted selflessly on behalf of the selfish. Jesus came to the divisive in order to unify them, to reconcile them to God. He was just like Joseph, the innocent one sinned against in terrible ways and yet became the Savior of a nation. Jesus took on the punishment that this nation deserved and simply by faith allows us to be treated as if we were the innocent ones. That's the good news of the gospel, and that is the foundation of any unity that we could ever have as a church. Divine goodness revealed in and through the plans of wicked men. The gospel of grace enacted through sinful plots. We have the wicked working according to their selfish desires, bringing about God's designed ends, all at the same moment, all found at Calvary. And that's what Paul's reminding the Corinthians here. God permits the selfish to exist within the church in part so that God can reveal and highlight authentic believers. We've experienced this. We all have, I'm sure, in the church. God uses divisive people to test the genuineness of His children. The divisive, the ungodly people test the patient. They test the loving. They test the perseverance of true believers. 
And while this divisive behavior bears testimony to the condition of their own heart, God is simultaneously using that divisiveness to bring about the good of the believers around them. He's using the trials of division to sanctify, to purify his children. None of that condones or justifies the sin of the selfish, but it can help us all to hang in there when we face divisive factions raising their head among us. We can be assured that God is doing many things in that moment of division. He's sanctifying the godly, allowing them to be recognized. He's highlighting the selfish, and both groups will be known by their fruits. Now let's move on and see some of the results of these divisions. Look at verse 20, and we'll see the results A result of the divisions. That's our third point. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They've taken Christ's meal and they've turned it into something else. The simple result of their divisiveness and their factioning is that they take the Lord's Supper and they rob it of what it ought to have. They take this divine ordinance, they rob it of its power, of its significance, and they turn it into something that actually proclaims the opposite of its intended truth. Similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 about having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. A divided congregation gathering around the Lord's table has the appearance of godliness but is quenching the Spirit and robbing it, denying it of its power. They were going through the motions. They were still gathering on the Lord's day. They were still singing together. They were still praying together, hearing the preaching of God's Word together. They were even gathering around the table, as it were. But instead of the Lord's table being a tangible expression of their spiritual unity, it instead becomes the tragic occasion for exposing their disunity. They turn the symbolism of the supper on its head. Rather than it being a picture of peace and the absence of hostility, rather than being the emblem of reconciliation, it instead was a moment of great resentment and estrangement. What a parable for us today. We can come together on Sundays, shake hands, sing songs together, sit together under the Word of God, partake of the Lord's Supper together, and yet permit to remain in our hearts resentment, partiality, hostility. That was the fruit of their sin. Terrible, hateful partiality, which is our fourth point. Another fruit of their divisions. The fruit of their division. Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That was the fruit of their divisions. Despising the church of God and humiliating others, especially the poor, among them. 
This congregation was guilty of turning the supper of the Lord into a mockery of divine grace. Now the context in Corinth, the situation, like many other churches of their day, was that the congregation would gather on the Lord's Day, they'd worship together, and part of their worship gathering was a communal meal. Sometimes it was referred to as a love feast. The saints would gather and have a big potluck, as it were. Very Southern Baptist of them. But this meal would have an occasion for those who had more, the rich, to bring more food than they needed so that they could bless those who had less. The rich would bring more food so that the poor could be fed from the surplus. And the Lord's Supper was often the focal point of this love feast. It wasn't as cleanly divided as we have it today. Their worship flowed seamlessly into the Lord's Supper and the fellowship meal. At least that was the plan. But Paul highlights the error of their ways. They were they are selfish enough to harbor divisions in their hearts, and those selfish hearts were producing selfish actions. Some of them were clamoring down to the food before the others, seeking to gratify their unrestrained appetites. They had no interest in giving deference to the poor and to the needy among them. The rich were indulging their desires and the poor were being despised, humiliated. It's the same sin that James blasts in James chapter 2. If you hold your finger here and flip over to James chapter 2, we'll see what he says. It's almost as if James was visiting Corinth. Speaking of the sin of partiality. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Listen to what he says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit up here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, divisions, divisions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is highlighting the same sin that we see back in 1 Corinthians 11. Partiality. That's sinfully prejudging some while sinfully uh, privileging others. Clearly condemned by the law of God, he says. But lest we think that we are immune to such a sin, 
Think about how we might behave in a similar situation. Imagine coming to church Sunday morning. One of your favorite celebrities shows up. Be a favorite preacher, theologian, favorite politician, favorite celebrity, whoever it is, favorite athlete. Don't you think that person would be greeted warmly with many handshakes? You'd be lobbying, come, come sit up here. Let me find you a seat. Sit by me. Shown to a seat of prominence, welcomed with open arms. And then what happens when someone shows up that is clearly down on their luck? Maybe they're homeless. Clothes in disrepair, smelling like they haven't showered in a month. How are they greeted? Do we shake their hands and warmly invite them in? Or do we avoid eye contact and keep our hands on our wallets? Partiality was a sin in Corinth and it despised the poor who were made in God's image. And that same despising can be just as tempting today. We need to remember that when we act in that way, we're actually undermining, we're forgetting the message of the gospel. That's what James says. Partiality says, with its actions, that Jesus didn't actually come to seek and save the lost. Rather, Jesus came to seek and save those that I like, those that look like me. Partiality says that grace alone and the gift of the Holy Spirit is not enough to unite us. Poverty is actually a barrier to genuine brotherhood. Partiality also reveals that we don't remember grace either. It acts as if we weren't recipients of prior divine grace and it ignores that we have first received benevolent blessings from God. We forget that we were born in spiritual poverty, bereft of any access to divine salvation. And God stooped down to us in our poverty and gave to us the riches of salvation. That's what we need to hear when we're acting in a partial way, that God in Christ became poor so that in Him we might have access to divine riches. He became nothing so that we might be lifted from the muck of sin in this world and adopted into the household of faith, the family of God. And it's only from that perspective of gospel-fueled humility that we can begin to melt the coldness of heart that drives the sin of partiality. We all need to hear that message. We need to be reminded of that truth. We need to be reminded of who we were prior to God acting on our behalf. Because the world does everything that it can to foster arrogant division and partiality. We're trained to think that the rich the powerful, the cosmopolitan, those are the ones that we should fawn over. But those who could do nothing to advance us, those are irrelevant. The poor, the needy, the despised, they're of no good use to us. They're not worth our time, they're not worth our energy. Praise be to God that He does not think that way, because if He did, 
If God only helped those who could help him, there would be nobody for him to help. He doesn't need us. We are the ones that are poor and needy. And he has provided all that we need in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you see your poverty? Do you see your spiritual bankruptcy outside of Jesus? If you see that, then know that you are in a blessed position. That's what Jesus himself said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you realize you have nothing to offer God and you trust in Christ as your only means of salvation, then you are immediately made an heir of the kingdom of God, a son of the king, a brother to Jesus Christ, and you have access to all the blessings of divine grace everlasting. But if you have not trusted in Jesus, then know that you stand condemned. That's where Paul lands in this section. Verse 22, we see our final point, Paul's rebuke of the divisive. Paul's rebuke of the divisive. What then? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul closes out this paragraph with several punchy rhetorical questions. Don't you have a house you could do this in? Can't you feed yourself at home rather than gorging yourself in a public way and drinking yourself silly in the presence of the poor who simply want something to eat? It's almost like Paul is saying, do you have no shame? Can't you see the embarrassing nature of your behavior? The way that you dishonor the poor and the needy? He uses the language of despising the church of God. You're acting in a contemptible and repugnant way towards the church which Christ has bought with His own blood. You are shaming the bride of Christ. Even more, when we act in these selfishly divisive ways, we not only despise the body, but we end up humiliating part of the body. We act as if that group over there they are unworthy of my fellowship and my communion. My group, we're better than them. We dress better than them. We speak better than them. We have better doctrinal knowledge. We know our politics better than them. Our ethics are more straightened out than them. They need to just stay over there lest they infect us with their vile wretchedness. That's what divisions impartiality is preaching. Have you ever sensed that in yourself? I refuse to commune with them, to fellowship with them, because they aren't worthy of my company. Maybe if they get their act together, if they straighten up, maybe I might show them the time of day, but not right now. They got to get all their ducks in a row before I even entertain forgiveness and reconciliation. You hear the pride in that? You see how such behavior is the opposite of divine grace? 
shown by our Heavenly Father? Such a disposition is actually more like Satan. Satan didn't have what he wanted, and so he pridefully rebelled and divided the angelic hosts in heaven. And those who think like him likewise pridefully rebel because they don't have what they want, and they seek to divide the faithful among Christ's body. Don't be guilty of such prideful behavior, such hateful division, such despising of the church of God. Such an action is not commendable, Paul says, which means it's sin. If you find such a disposition in your heart, confess it to God. Take it to Him. I know that unity and forgiveness can be exceedingly difficult, but that is the gospel way. Harboring bitterness and resentment is a surefire way to undermine your own spiritual health. It eats at us. Bitterness chews at us from the inside. And if left unresolved, it will eventually produce divisions within the body. Don't remain there. Think much and often of Jesus who forgave at great cost to himself the ultimate cost. That's the virtue of love that this world and the flesh can never do on its own. Truly forgive in love. And if you've never tasted that forgiveness, then I encourage you to hear the message of Jesus found in Scripture. That we are all born separated. Estranged from God. Alienated in our sin. And because of that, we are not forgiving of of others either. We're quick to take offense and to harbor a record of wrongs, quick to be selfish, quick to divide and withdraw from communion and fellowship. But God takes the initiative to send down a sacrificial lamb, Jesus himself being the perfect substitute who shows us what godly forgiveness and grace is like and extends that to us all. All the while taking on the punishment earned by the sins of His people. The godly one mistreated so that He could save a nation. Trust in this Jesus and you too can be made a part of the people of God and restored to communion with God in heaven, filled with His Holy Spirit and thereby empowered to grow in your ability to be a peacemaker in this life. That's what we really want to be. Peacemakers. Not division makers. See, the divisive will eventually be judged, Scripture says. And they will be given the desire of their heart. Division. They will be placed in a position of hell. Eternal punishment divided from the blessed presence of God for all eternity. But for the peacemakers, theirs will be divine fellowship, a presence, a place in the house of God. That's what Jesus promises in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. What will you be? Will you be a divisive, dividing person, or will you be a peacemaker? Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent the Son to be the reconciliation that we need, to bring about the forgiveness that we all need. Father, we pray that we would be the kind of people that are quick to forgive because we have been shown so much grace. That our debt was forgiven, though it was so huge, how could we not forgive our debtors? Make us into this kind of people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to close this morning by singing together uh, the doxology. It's hymn number 668 in our hymnal. 668.